Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And this is episode 92, and we are covering the top five films of 1970. And this is going to be the beginning of our roughly month-long uh, endeavor where we, like last year, are covering the top films from 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, and 20 years ago. So over the course of the next few weeks, we will be covering 1980, 1990, and 2000 as well um, as we approach the end of this year and then move on to a whole host of new topics that we'll be covering next year. So um, 1970, Frank. Uh, uh, good year. Yeah. Was there, it was a good year for movies. Is there so? Is there other stuff besides what you chose for the top five here? Yeah, I mean, there's things that we've talked about in the past. Um, specifically, uh, five easy pieces hmm. um, more than anything. Um, and Scrooge was also in 1970, which Scrooge holds a very special place in my heart. It does hold a special place in your heart, and it has been a long time since we've talked about Scrooge. Now, like that, yeah, almost two years, right? Yeah. Actually, um, technically, it's almost uh, three years ago because Scrooge was one of the episodes, correct, that was on the prototype of the Two Guys Five Movies podcast that we completed using a tape, fucking tape recorder. Yes, it's true. <laughs> um, Just so to we see what it would be like, right? Yeah, it ended up being a four-hour-long podcast <laughs> that we realized we need to trim down on that some. Right now, and now we only do two hours. Sometimes a little more. Sometimes a little more. Sometimes a little less. True. So, are those the only two? Um, um no. Uh, there's also uh, some stuff that just was kind of, I wouldn't say lesser, but I don't hold it in as high of esteem as the ones that are on the list. Um, so, Zabriski Point, uh, which I liked, but I guess I just don't like enough out of Antonioni's stuff. Um, Ballad of Cable Hogue, which I think is a really good movie. Um, but I think it's just a good movie. I don't know that it's necessarily like an important film. Um, and Donkey Skin, uh, which is a, I guess it's, it's a criterion, like important film, but I don't know. I just don't enjoy it as much as the other stuff on here. Um, but I consider putting all those on the list. Um, Probably five easy pieces more than anything else would have definitely made the list. Um, had where we you, not have just talked about it, where, I mean, do you think that, just, where do you think that would have fallen? Uh, top three, definitely. Yeah, uh, maybe even I don't know, man. Those two, the number one and number two on this list are really friggin' good movies, so it's kind of hard to argue against them, I guess. But like, I like, I love five easy pieces. Nah, it's a good movie. Like, was that most depressing movies? Is it? It might be. It's pretty yeah, depressing. It be. Yeah. Yeah, that Midnight Cowboy. <clears throat> um. All right. So if that's it, I mean, I guess we can just go ahead and get started. Um, yeah. Unless there's. Oh, did you want to talk a little bit quickly about um? Daria Nicolini. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, Dario Argento's uh, longtime uh, contributor slash um, co-writer slash paramour slash the mother of his daughter, Asia Argento, um, Daria Nicoliti, um, passed away this week. 
um, predominantly known for horror movies, uh, specifically with Argento. Um, pretty important uh, actress in my life in terms of the films that she did. Um, in addition to stuff like Deep Red and Canabre and Inferno that she's in with Argento, she also um, in a couple of uh, Mario Bava movies, um, who's another one of my favorite Italian horror directors. Just a really like reliable, um, you know, consistent actress. Um, pretty important, I guess, to the giallo genre of Italian horror uh, with her contributions to screenwriting and also the fact that she, you know, is the mother of like a person that's pretty important in the second generation of that in Asia Argento. Um, but I was so sad when I heard that she died. Um, another person, if you would have asked me like a year ago, I would have told you that I probably already thought she was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, although in all honesty, she wasn't like super old, I guess. She was only seven. I mean, she's only 70. I mean, right. So, you know, I expect people, rich people to typically live to be much older than that. Um, but sad to have her pass, yeah. you know, Glad that we've yeah. been able to talk about her a number of times on the podcast. Yeah, she's shown up at least three times, right? If not... Well, we I think that all three of those movies I just named have been on... Well, Suspiria, she, you know, she, she's credited with writing, and then Inferno was on here, and then Phenomena was on here, and then did we Phenobre do... Phenobre and Deep Phenobre, Red, too, I think, right? Deep yeah. Red, I don't think we've actually done yet, have we? Oh, uh, maybe I just watched Deep Red. Yeah, I think that's right. You, I remember you telling me you watched it, but um, yeah, I don't think we've done Deep Red yet at, any, at this point. Yeah, I don't. I mean that. I I think that's a great movie. I don't know what list it shows up on. Yeah, if you go back and look at our horror episodes, particularly like the B horror movies from last year when we covered that whole year, and I God, I'd love to do that again because I did like that, like a um something like that again. Yeah. Um. But um. But yeah, the, the, those episodes are all in the archives there you didn't love it so much at the time sometimes well it depends <laughs> some of those years you were not a uh, not overly fond of right and yeah. that's that's going to happen especially the early years especially right. the early years when i had to watch the slashers and yeah um and i and, and that's a, that was a lesson learned as i realized i from that time period i realized i just don't like slashers yeah i mean i liked them when i was younger and as i've gotten older it's like i just can't find any value in them anymore really there's there's good ones don't get me wrong i feel the same mostly but like sometimes a really good slasher can like i don't know it can just do something yeah but when it's just um what's the word i'm looking for like gratuitous yeah right like and, some of those are, and, and some of them are just really poorly done, just cash grabs. But some of that stuff, you know, so I still think like right. The Prowler is a good movie, and I still like the Second Friday the Thirteenth a lot. What was the one that would like had like the low key feminist um, like ideals that were kind of strewn across it, and it was really brutal. Like guys, like uh... Slumber Party Massacre. No. No, sorry, not that one. Yeah, I know. I, I I thought about that. Like as soon as I said, it, I was like, "That's the wrong way to describe." It. No, it's out in the woods. Um, and there's like the ridiculous like werewolf thing that like jumps. Oh, out um, Mother's Day. Mother's Day. Yeah, like even that. Like as much as like, I I thought there was good elements to it. Like so, the only one I really honestly like hated was the first Friday the Thirteenth. Like I just couldn't stand watching it. I understand. 
I just really enjoyed that movie, and I think it's super important. Oh, it is. Yeah, absolutely. I get that. But yeah, no, I, I, you know, even if I didn't enjoy it at the time, some things that you don't enjoy at the time, you end up having fond memories of later. Um, right. Love you, Houston. Um, Number <clears throat> um uh so yeah so yeah i i definitely like to think about that at some point um but and then david um prouse passed away uh today um yeah also sad yeah because mm. he was just in a movie that we talked about recently right what mm, i remember typing his name not too long ago um <clears throat> in star wars movie no what was he in that we played really oh, okay there it is clockwork orange mm. yeah and it's and not recent maybe but it's been a, but we talked about it this year um no yeah, that's funny he was in vampire circus too interesting small role yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's a shame. I mean, again, like, a, even if it was just, you know, like, the physical body and everything, I mean, fucking, in terms of, like, you know, mannerisms, I mean, Vader is, like, one of the most, like, noticeable characters, um, you know, around the world, so, um, yeah, acting inside that suit, I mean. <clears throat> Funny, I guess you didn't have to do too much after um, Star Wars. Right. That probably made him, yeah. Yeah, he was in a, I mean, it's a decent amount of um, low budget, you know, like Hammer mm-hmm. slash um, Tygon movies from the early 70s. Right. The carry on shit, the up stuff until mm-hmm. he's in Clockwork Orange. Right. It's yeah. on a TV too, Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway. Yep. But yeah, it's a shame too. I mean, um, okay, so let's go ahead and get started. Before we do that, just let me remind everybody that you can follow us um, on Facebook, uh, our Facebook page, on Instagram, and uh, you can contact us at two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five, two guys at five movies at gmail.com. If you have any ideas, especially since we're coming up on a new year, you have any ideas for episodes? I think we already have like one that's kind of a special request that we have planned out for next year. Um, and then, um, I can't remember if we have anything else right now, but, um, so yeah, so if you have any ideas, let us know, uh, anything you'd like to hear us talk about. Um, all right. So number five on your list, and here's where I'm going to start butchering all these names. Um, (laughs) so number five on the list is the garden of Finzi Contini's got that right. I've been practicing for fucking a month. Um, Frank can tell you, I've messed it up almost every single yeah, time. I was going to say, you said it wrong as recently as last night. <laughs> right. Uh, it's directed by <laughs> Vittorio De Sica. It stars Helmut Berger. Lino, Cap- Lino Capoliccio, Dominic Sada, and Fabio Testi. Um, and it has a... 100- Dominique. What did I say? Dominic. Oh, Dominique. Right, yes. Um, I got thrown off by... Um, Capoliccio and right, but you did um, good. Yeah, so it has. Uh, we still got a bunch of movies left. 
Um, has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics, has a 79% from audiences. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and why you have it on the list? Uh, so set during the rise of fascism in Italy in the late uh, 1930s, um, it's basically follows a group of young um, middle class and upper middle class uh, Jewish youths who play tennis together. Um, and because of like increasing fascist restrictions on the Jewish population, um, they're forced to play at the estate of this wealthy Jewish family, um, the Finzi Contini's. Um, basically oblivious for long periods of time to kind of the strife of the rest of the world um, because they're sort of just cloistered by, you know, these beautiful like gardens and estates of this, um, you know, palatial Italian mansion. Um, but over time, you know, um, those walls kind of come crumbling in. Um, there's people are sent away to war. They die. They dissipate. They flee and disappear. Um, so finally the once like proud family sort of reduced the kind of nothing at the end of the movie. Um, and then, you know, the whole place is sort of abandoned. Um, presumably because they've been sent to concentration camps is what's implied or um, just, you know, whatever. Some of them have been killed. Um, probably the prototypical version of what you would call a white person movie, I guess. <laughs> um, right. In the sense that it, a lot of it is a very, it's very small like nuanced character studies of like the feelings and emotions of these kids like towards each other during what's ostensibly like one of the most horrific times in human history. Um, like, how are you more concerned with like your romantic attractions to, you know, this girl when your people are being slaughtered like across sure. Europe? Um, but I think that's what kind of makes it compelling, uh, sort of a, like a less than harshly judgmental look at the horrors of the Holocaust um, from a non-apologetic Italian viewpoint in a time period where there was still some tenderness towards like really condemning people that had embraced fascism. Mm -hmm. um, which is an interesting counterpoint to the number two movie on this list too, which we'll talk right. about that I think does a much more like bold job of embracing that or tackling that subject. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the other side of it is like, even if you don't embrace fascism, if you're not actively fighting it, like if you're just kind of trying to live your life, are you really like any better, I guess maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of is, juxtapose you know that like weighty ideology against like the beautiful cinematography of this movie um De Sica's just um brilliant direction like the movie looks amazing um from the interiors of like the mansion to the exteriors and the gardens and stuff like it's a really beautiful looking movie um very lush there's something about Italian cinematography from this time and again the number two movie we'll talk about this again because I think it shares like a lot of the same qualities that's just gorgeous to look at like there's something about italy in the 1970s when they're trying to film the 1930s and 40s that they just do a beautiful job um probably my, I, 
I wish it was a little more bold in its statements, I guess. Like it tackled the ideas more, although I understand again, like Desika is trying to make a movie that says something and not trying to, I guess, like evoke the ire of the populace. So he's got to be kind of careful with how he's, he's, he portrays it as a humanistic story in a way that you get the point without like being beat over the head with like the atrocity. And right. I think you're probably still like 20 years out from being able to show um the atrocities of world war ii from that perspective you know especially from like the genocide perspective um shit what schindler's list is what like 92 93 94 somewhere around there yeah somewhere around there like right? so 93 i think yeah. almost 25 years before the first like true like yeah. film depiction of the horrors of the holocaust so yeah i mean i understand that he's showing showing you that horror almost by like a mission kind of. Right. Um, and I think that the performances are really good, you know, and again, beautiful movie to look at. And I think it's a really important film. It's just, to me, maybe the least interesting movie on this list. Although I still, you know, think it's a really important film and I really enjoyed watching it again. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a beautiful movie. Um, I, there's no debating that. It was very pleasing to the eye. Um, I think his framing is really well done. And um, I wish I, I think I watched this on YouTube. Um, I wish I would have yeah. seen a slightly better copy um, of it, just because I think that the um, coloring probably is a bit better than it is in that version. It's probably on YouTube. <clears throat> if I had seen like a, a nice like criterion type copy of it or something like that. Um, but yeah, it was like the least engaging to me and you're right. Like it kind of like is it borders on one of those white people movies. Um, but at the same time, like, I mean, I, I think given the time period that it's in, I mean, it's interesting. It's like not that not to compare that time period to like now at all, but um, only in the sense that like, Look, I do think people like focus on other things outside of what's going on in the time period. Like you end up like, you know, having these like personal discoveries or these things that you like, you know, fixate on like, you know, during a time like that's like, you know, turbulent and terrible. Um, so it's like I get all that. And I think that's probably like, well, we'll talk about that next year. But it's like uh, when we talk about white people movies, probably um, more in depth. Um, but it's like I think that's part of the problem to me is that um what i have with them is like well yeah of course that happens that's everybody's daily lives lives kind of like every like so many people do that because it's part of human nature but to dramatize that like sometimes irks me um this didn't irk me like at all but i i get your point about being like a prototype or a forefather um but yeah there's this element of like these damn like you know um you know these rich kids you know like right you know, and it's like, this is who's chosen to focus on, but it's still, an, it's an interesting story, um, you know, overall. It just wasn't the most engaging to me, but it's still a really good movie. I mean. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, like, Five Easy Pieces would have pushed this off of this list. I think. Yeah. Um, but I think it still is a, an important movie. I think Vittorio De Sica is a, a pretty important, you know, creator and director um an actor um so you know yeah i was i was happy to see that it was this year and that we'd be able to talk about it because i don't know like what other lists it ever makes 
So sure. And what is the? I, I just asked you this two nights ago, but what was the other like big movie that he directed? Vittorio De Sica. Yeah. Um, directed. I thought there was another well, that you really we, liked. Yeah, uh, we were directed. talking about him being um, uh, the principal um, male romantic lead in uh, Earrings of Adam Day. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought I said maybe I looked him up around that time. I was looking through his list, and there was like a movie that I've heard you mention before. Um, Umberto D. Uh, that's a pretty important movie. It's good. Um... Oh, he directed The Bicycle Thief. That's what I'm trying to think of. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right. That's what, that's what I'm thinking of. Because we never talk about that on here. Um... Yeah, that's another one where I just don't know. Yeah. I don't know where it goes. You know what I mean? Like, that's... Um... Sure. Yeah. Oh, The Children Are Watching Us. That's a, that's a good movie. Sorry, I was looking at the Italian titles and trying to figure out what they all were instead of just glancing like one inch over to the right and reading the American. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, well, that's new. Yeah, Wiki, Wiki's phone display is not the best thing in the world. <clears throat> Tries to hide information on you. <clears throat> but yeah, no, it was a good movie. It was just, you know, subject matter wise, like, you know, it's not always the thing that I'm most like, uh, interested in like but it was um really good and yeah i mean he's a yeah. really really well directed all right so for something completely different than that uh number four in your list is robert altman's brewster mcleod it stars bud court sally kellerman michael murphy shelly duvall and renee aubergeonois and it has an 86 percent from critics and an 82 percent from audiences you want to tell us a little bit about this movie or try to um and uh why you like it so much um yeah so kind of a movie that defies like easy compartmentalization or description um bud court plays the titular brewster mcleod um who's a presumably like autistic um recluse who lives under the Houston Astrodome in a fallout shelter. <laughs> um, he's building a pair of mechanical wings that he can use to fly. Um, he's kind of protected by his fairy godmother. <sighs> Sorry, it's tired. Of you. Um, protected from by his fairy godmother and Sally Kellerman. Um, who sort of just appears and kind of prevents bad things from happening to him. Um, it's kind of, he's told not to like engage in any kind of like romantic activities with women because then it'll cause her to not be able to protect him. But he ends up murdering a bunch of people who are sort of in his way, um, presumably by strangling them, but also by having like a bird shit on their heads first, basically. Um, he hooks up with Shelly Duvall and then she kind of turns him into the police and I don't know, his wings work and he flies around the Astrodome for like seven or eight minutes mm -hmm. until he runs out of like energy and crashes to the ground and dies. I mean, that's, that's, that's the movie. Right. It's funny. 
and it's like really weird and it's yeah. very distinctly it feels very distinctly 1970s to me like the way it's filmed the settings um altman cribs a lot of things from like british comedy um particularly almost like the um Benny Hill-esque nature of like the chases and the way that it's set to music, but it also has kind of a I mean, this I know it's like would be a precursor to this, but kind of like a Smokey and the Bandit feel to it almost Um, with the idea of like the rebels of the open road, sort of like these car chases and shit Um, Bud Court is consistently the weirdest leading man like in any movie ever like he's just not an overly engaging or charismatic guy but yet somehow is still like pretty compelling on screen Mm -hmm. just with his like his weirdness i guess um i think my love of shelly duvall is uh pretty well chronicled um over the course of the podcast so probably no this is the first time I actually saw Shelly Duvall, and I was like, okay, I can see that. Oh, my God. She's so attractive in um, Three Women. Three, That's true. Three Women. Yeah, you're right. I think she's beautiful in The Shining, too. So, And someday, to go back to Robert Altman, someday you're going to have to talk about Popeye. Mm. I just you, don't know. You know I have a bad reaction to that movie, right? I think most people do, which is one of the reasons why I've never put it on a list before, mm-hmm. because I feel like I feel like while I can defend some of my choices most of the time, like there's some choices where I don't know, like from a rational standpoint, how I defend my love for it. But man, do I love Popeye. Like that's one of my favorite movies of my childhood. Hmm. I I love maybe, Popeye. As maybe, much that's, as I, maybe that's the list one day. Five movies that Frank loves and everybody else hates. See, that's why the black hole made the best um, sci-fi in the 70s. Hmm. And definitely did not belong on that list from an objective standpoint, but right. I love that movie. Right. So, I mean, don't, anyway. you, don't you think that Altman here is, like, he's trying to, like, I mean, this is part of the whole, like, baby boom, like, fight against, like, tradition and norms and stuff like that, like, their version of that, where... Isn't he trying to like upend like a lot of things that like came before it, like by having these like not only like the they're they're I mean it has a narrative, but it's like these like the absurdity of it, like cer- certain like you know elements like the idea of casting Bud Court as a leading man, um, in this the idea that like because what's his name the cop in it is from san francisco right like i mean isn't it an obvious bullet reference or something like that probably well it's a yes frank shaft yeah right i mean he's supposed to look like steve mcqueen right in terms of like his the way they cast like the guy with the bedroom eyes and then the sweaters and the Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i forgot him getting getting in the porsche and whatever Mm mm-hmm I mean, what I think happens, I think Altman probably watched a bunch of Fellini movies and was like, yeah, like, this is what I want to make. This is how making movies is. This is what I want to do. Right. Like, he watched, like, La Strada, like, four times in a row and went nuts. I mean, I really think that the end sequence is 
like it's got to be like a direct um ode to Lestrada. Hmm. Um but it's still it, it it looks nice. I think it's got some really funny stuff in it. I think as a precursor to just kind of like the madcap irreverent like comedy of the 1970s. I think you see a lot of that here. Mm-hmm. Um while also being like I don't know if it's a criticism of I don't know. I don't know what he's trying to say in this movie. It's just a weird movie. But I know that when I first saw it, like as a kid, this movie was mesmerizing to me. Just in the fact that it was so odd and nonsensical at points. Um but still maintaining like enough of a narrative where you understand what's happening in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it doesn't really make any sense. I think there's some vague criticism of like the Wizard of Oz and patriotism. Like, I don't know. Well, definitely with the Wizard of Oz stuff, right? <clears throat> I mean, the woman that's singing there is the Wicked Witch of the West, right? The very beginning of the movie. Yeah, and then the woman that like masturbates herself to his pull-ups right. is dressed like Dorothy at the end right. carrying a right. you know, a small um whatever kind of dog Toto is. Yeah. Well what's funny is like I mean I uh Vincent Camby says that um compares this basically like it's a story you know a timeless you know he's, he's comparing it, he's trying to be or make orpheus ascending um about innocence and corruption and all these things um by using rageous and vulgar terms and actually says that robert downey senior did it better um, orpheus or icarus orpheus doesn't make it orpheus sense. ascending yeah what is that orpheus i thought orpheus was the guy that left his girlfriend down in hell uh yeah well, that doesn't make any sense. He's creating wings for himself. Isn't it Icarus more than Orpheus? Or Daedalus, maybe, but probably Icarus. Because yeah. he creates the wings because he wants to fly really high, and then <clears throat> when he finally gets up there, like he can't sustain it, and he crashes the earth and dies. I mean, I, I assume because he's like down the fallout shelter of the <laughs> Astrodome, um, there there is a sense of rising too that comes with it, like you know, um, from from underground. So I mean, I don't know. I'm just going to assume Camby actually like has a point, like that he's like probably making. Okay, well, like, no, I want I want I want to talk about that because I don't know. So I guess maybe if you think about like when he's leaving with his wings at the end of the movie, and he kind of like pauses to look back at um. Shelly Duvall, who's chosen to get back together with her boring politician boyfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some of that there, but then it's so much more about like the story of Icarus. Well, like, the I guy mean, that right. willing to sacrifice anything to um I mean, obviously, I agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't um fucking big fuck 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 <laughs> fuck him. Uh, but I, I, I do see his point though, that he makes about Robert Junior Robert Downey. So it's like, um, uh, what we just watched that I love so much. Oh, Greaser's Palace. Greaser's Palace. 
I think Greaser, I think this is in that tradition to some degree. Like, you know, this is like almost like, I guess, an acid comedy to some, like in some ways. Cool. Like, and and I think it's part of that, like I, like I was saying, like a kind of like, you know, um, you know, counterculture tradition of the boomers around this time period. And I think that it's just trying to upend. Like, I think that's the point of it. I don't know if there is like a message behind all of it. I think it's an upending of a lot of things. So yeah, I think there's attacks to like on the Wizard of Oz. I think there's attacks on Americana um, and all those kind of things. And I think he's just throwing it. There's attacks on like Steve McQueen almost like, you know, making right. fun of that. It's like, I think he's just kind of like throwing all these things in a kitchen sink mentality. Um, not to say that there isn't a point to, you know, the Icarus story kind of and stuff like that, but it's like, um like why he's including that but um yeah i i think a lot of it is just uh this attempt to like almost like throw everything together as much as possible and make a narrative out of it because that's not how movies are usually made i mean right um so i i think there's this kind of like uh hipsterish like nature to the whole thing probably like in, in its background but um despite all that like i did enjoy this movie like yeah, I, it's fun to watch this i'd never seen it before but i thought it was extremely well directed um i think you definitely see the talent there like i mean you know i know he'd already made mash but it's like you still see the talent like that early in his career i think he does an incredible job of getting performances out of all these people oh yeah yeah, yeah. because for such absurd comedy like the absurdity is actually the thing that sells it is the idea that it's so straight laced most of the time like he gets really yeah, good performances out of these people. Um, I think conceptually, like you know, like the scenes were better than they played out sometimes. Um, and I thought some of like the jokes and stuff like that might be a little bit like outdated, but there it was still like enjoyable enough um, that it's like I, I I thought it was a I thought it was like a good work or like a, like a minor good minor work from like a a really well known like celebrated director. I mean. It's interesting to watch something like that and then um, <clears throat> think about movies like Atlantic City and Shortcuts and Nashville and whatever, like mm -hmm. anything Altman did, you know, 10 years past. Right. Because um, you can see some similarities to it, but there's definitely also like a lot of difference. Um, I think there's a lot of impro improvisation in this movie too, it feels like, mm. just in some of the things they say. Um, I'm wondering how much they were actually driving the cars when um, <clears throat> he's getting those shots of their faces, um, and especially like Bud Court, just consistently looking like nonplussed by what's happening around him, even though he's being like whipped around. Right. Um, uh, that that made me laugh pretty. Yeah. Hard no, out. I agree. That's, yeah. Um, yeah. I thought the Shelly Duvall stuff where she like basically like counsels the dude at the end and I, I, there's a lot of little things like that that like made me laugh that like sh maybe should I don't know if it's supposed to make me laugh or not but like yeah um but it, yeah I mean there's plenty of times I chuckled like throughout this movie like at a, at a lot of things so um yeah it was enjoyable my I'd never seen it but I liked it overall and then um uh fuck I'm going to butcher his name if I try to say it again. Um, but Odo from Deep Space Nine, um, turning into um, the bird like lecture. Um, oh yeah, over yeah, that's, that's a really funny. Um, yeah, <clears throat> like framing piece. Yeah, and it's like, and again, that's another one. It's like almost like a kind of a classical framing piece 
at times for like um like stage plays and stuff like that like having that person kind of like you know kind of come in off to the side i mean rocky horror does something similar sure. you know um and i again i think that's another upending like the he's going for here is like almost making a mockery of this um you know traditional framing piece like you know well he's the chorus that's kind of like yeah through um through illusion and indirect commentary like telling you the story of Brewster McLeod um and like losing his own mind in the process of it um <laughs> When he's pretending to be a blue-footed booby, uh, at the end is really funny. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 a good movie. I don't know if it would be everybody's cup of tea, but I think that it's um it's probably worth watching if you if you like Altman or it wasn't free, was it? Like it was a pay. Uh, yes, and it's only pay through I believe uh, Amazon. Yeah, like nobody will, nobody else has it. And you got to be careful with it because there's like two different versions, like of it, and like one of them isn't available, and one of them is two ninety nine right now. Yeah. But it's it's it is interesting looking at those two movies like together like that, and it's like something we've talked about off air a little bit, like of of like what's going on in the rest of the world and what they're processing and how, but how we're dealing with it. Like it never fe- like. You know, it's like I know it's like been talked about like so much, like how we're like you know our state in the world right now, America and stuff like that, and like how we're viewed and stuff. We're never on the same page with the rest of the world to some degree. Like we're 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 always on our own shit, um, most of the time. Yeah, it's it's interesting though because I mean Altman had just made right the year sure. before yeah. like a pretty right. pretty strong anti-war statement. Mm-hmm. Even though it's a comedy, like it still is like very like decidedly anti-war in that. Yeah. Um, and then it turns around and makes this almost like maybe it was too much for him, like and he wanted to do something that was yeah. more abstract or lighthearted or whatever. Um but yeah, I don't know. Because yeah, every other right. movie Every other movie on this list, and not not really the next movie so much right. because that, that is more like just a straight genre film. But the other three movies on the list are very like remarkably strong statements about pretty powerful things. And sure, yeah, you know, and you got a Mark War a few years after this, and or a couple years after this, and um, yeah, it just feels like you know they're. It's it's really interesting to me that like it takes so long for those movies about the war to start getting made. Uh, what else was around this? T- no, this was we talked about it last year. Um, Tin Drum. Yeah, but um, Tin Drum's ten years after. Ten years after this, right? Yes, yeah, seventy nine. Seventy nine, right? Is when Tin Drum is. So that's even later. But it's like it's interesting that it takes so long for those things to kind of pop up, you know, and um. With America, well, also, with America, it doesn't feel like it is it, that happens so much to me. I mean, the United States was making because we were do, we didn't have anything to apologize for, right? So the U.S. is making like these celebrations of, um, you know, the American war effort and right. shit like Tora 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 and Magnificent Seven and or not Magnificent Seven on um, Dirty Dozen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, like. So, and we're doing those movies in, like, in the 40s and 50s, you know, right. but 
Bicycle Thieves is probably the first really strong like examination of the war recovery effort. Mm-hmm. And even that isn't so much like an apology or a criticism. It's more just like a look at like the horror of what happened to the Italian people. Right. And that's 48, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty soon after the war ends, yeah. But like it's probably pretty hard to process, especially from the standpoint of being like, you know, a German filmmaker or an Italian filmmaker or like somebody mm-hmm. that knows that they have to play to the citizenry of those countries, you know, like think how bold it is that you have stuff like Apocalypse Now being made, you know, what, eight years after the end of the Vietnam War? Right, and that's and that's kind of what I meant is like, you know, in part of what I was saying just a second ago is like we we don't wait largely at all. And you're right. I think it's because we didn't have anything in World War II to apologize for. But it's even like the criticisms. We don't really wait on that stuff. I mean, you think like Apocalypse Now, and then it's like five, five or six years later. It's like Platoon and you know right. Full Metal Jacket and all those come out. Like, but it's like it's still within ten, like you know, roughly almost like you know ten years or so. Um, but we also like we've stopped criticizing in a lot of ways. <clears throat> like the movies that are made about the war effort anymore, almost like. Re- roundly positive portrayals of um yeah the right. soldiers in the military and it's you know You're we're right. really far past even though it's only like 15 or 20 years like you're not seeing shit like gi jane or um fuck, what's that one terrible movie about um the girl getting raped and anyway yeah there's yeah, plenty of like that's interesting yeah this is why it's a really interesting thing and i haven't put a lot of thought into it but it's why i would be interested in doing like a war movies um at some point like because i think you would pick probably a lot of things from different time periods is my guess and i, I think it would be interesting to kind of look at those um, yeah but i don't really like like i feel like a lot of modern war movies are way too nationalistic or like pro-american and not to say that you shouldn't have a like a positive look at like the lives of soldiers in war but i feel like it's become almost like propaganda to the point that see america is the country that's not doing anything wrong like people are afraid to cast a critical eye at what happens Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I, I think you're right about that. And I think that's what would be interesting about like, exa- like thinking about this more because I haven't really given it that much thought. I don't find myself thinking about war movies or um, like the history yeah. of the military that much. So it's like, yeah, it is interesting, the perception of all that stuff. When we watched The Beast a few weeks ago, yeah, um, I really thought about it a lot, like how different. Because I was thinking about something like Black Hawk Down, which to me is like pretty similar, um, at least tonally, of the idea of like stranded behind enemy lines and whatever. But um, there's a bunch of movies from the mid mid to late '80s that, and the '70s and whatever, that are much more like critical looks at, um, uh, you know, like the U.S. involvement or like military action in general. 
And I just feel like in the United States, it's almost very similar to what happened after World War II, where we're just not, and maybe it's because like in a lot of ways, we're still actively involved in, you know, military action overseas, um, you know, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And we have been for 20 years. Like maybe people just aren't comfortable from a filmmaking standpoint, like really criticizing, Yeah, you know. I mean, think Three Kings is what, 23, 24 years old at this point? And like, I don't think you can make Three Kings today about soldiers currently in Afghanistan. Right. I don't think that would fly. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Oh, right. You have things like American Sniper. Is that what it's called? Like, American Sniper, Zero Dark, Dark 30. I mean, mm-hmm. there's all kinds of stuff that are. Yeah. Yeah, American Sniper is incredibly pro. Right. Um, and you know, with with reason because it's it's based on the autobiography of a guy who gave his life basically and then the service of the United States. Yeah. Um. But I don't know that it needs to be mutually exclusive, right? Like I think you can right celebrate the lives and heroism. Well, I'm just saying that's the that's the script that got picked out of the pile. You know, I mean, right. like. I mean, that's what they just chose to make, you know, chose to make. So, and that's, yeah, you're right. I mean, a lot of those movies are like that. No, um, that's what they choose is, is the the positive stuff about it. So, yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I think about it more and like look at examples. But Yeah, I want to think about that because that is a yeah. Uh, yeah. Now that we're super off topic. Right. Well, to get us back on topic uh let's go to the number three movie on the list the circle rouge uh the red circle it is directed by jean-pierre melville it stars eve montaud alain de lune and andre borville did you is, is that how his name is said alain de lune yeah yes oh. i looked it up i've never i've never said it that way yeah uh well that's why like i was like sitting here like and i was like Elaine Delon, because I've always heard you say his name before, and I was like, "Well, let me look it up just to make sure." And um, it's a uh, Alon Alon Delon. Um, is how you pronounce it? But um, has a ninety-five percent from critics and a ninety-two percent from audiences. Uh, Want to tell us a little bit about this movie and uh, why it's on the list? Um, so this is the second. Um hard-boiled crime collaboration between um, Delon, Delon, Elaine Delon, as I'm going to say. <laughs> the American, I say his name. Um, between Delon and uh, Melville. Um, this one uh, follows a prisoner who's released for good behavior early from jail, um, who's initially committed to the idea of going straight, but then sort of gets roped back into um, the world of crime um, through this elaborate jewel heist um, with another prisoner, another criminal that he kind of saves from the law, um, an alcoholic police officer um, and a guy that's going to be their fence. They're going to rob these jewels. Um, and there's a cop that's uh, on their case, like on their tail, trying to catch um, Vogel, right? Is that his name? The guy who's the the other criminal? Oh, I have um, I don't know. 
I have such a hard time. Yes, that's correct. It's Vogel. The second criminal, the one that's yep. not. Cool. Yep, it's Vogel. Yeah. Um, there's this common thread in like French gangster movies. Um, this movie, uh, Le Samurai, um, Bob Le Flambert, all directed by Melville, um, where the idea of the loyalty of criminals to each other, but also the ultimate disloyalty of criminals, and the fact that in general, the law is going to triumph. Um, it's always weird to me to watch like these French New Wave crime movies in the sense that like the criminals never really get away with shit. Like every one of these, every every French crime movie that I can think of at the time, like you never have a criminal that has a happy ending. And most of the time they all fucking die because the cops just like shoot them dead. And it's funny because you think about like how I don't know daring like the French were at the time in terms of the movies they were making. And yet they're very like, especially Melville, he's very much like lockstep with the idea that the cops are going to catch people and there's really like crime does not pay. Even though it can be tragic and you can look at like the examination of the bonds of friendship between men and the loyalties tested between men and women and then people that, you know, like the fact that like these criminals have no real like overriding love for one another, but they can be bound together by common like need and necessity. Um, all of which like the ideas of like fraternity and brotherhood you know, were pretty prevalent in French film for, like, forever. Yeah. But just in the criminal element, like, you know, there's never any real... Somebody's always going to get fucking killed, right. and you're never going to succeed, which is always strange to me, because you don't see that in, you know, like, American crime movies um, from the same time period. Um, this movie has one of the most brilliant heist sequences, I think, ever. Right. Um what would you say that is like maybe 25 minutes long? I think it, I think it, yeah, I think it clocks in at 26. I've read like, um, where there's only ambient sound and no dialogue. I think there's like one line of dialogue in the course of like 25 minutes, Yeah. but just the, and it, it reminds me a lot of the scene in Rafifi, um, and also the scene in thief. Like there's a few movies that have done a right. similar idea and done it well. Um, just the mechanical precision of, you know, professional criminals doing their jobs. Um, but it's just, it's brilliant here. Like, it's really amazing. Um, Deloon, is that how you say it? Deloon, I'm never going to yeah. call him that. Delon is um, <laughs> one of my favorite French actors from this time period. Um, and this is a really great performance of his, you know, he's... Um, He's handsome in like a pretty but also rugged kind of way. Um, he's got a very expressionistic face. Um, I, just, I like him a lot, and I like him a lot in this movie. Um, this is one that, even though I had seen uh, Bob Le Flambert and Le Samurai when I was younger, um, this is a movie I did not see until probably oh seven or oh eight when it was released on dvd yeah that's about right um by the criterion collection um so kind of a revelation when i first saw it um it's a beautiful movie to look at um it kind of reminds me in a really weird way of like the umbrellas of Cherbourg, but huh. 
like a non fantasy version of that same France, if that makes any sense. Right. Um, just in the colors and the way that um just the way that people look in it and I don't know, like especially the sequences with like the the showgirls and stuff like singing. Or I guess they're not showgirls, they're choir girls or I don't know what you're calling. But um I feel like a certain kinship there just this is like the more like realist version of it. Um, and it kind of reminds me in a lot of ways of the way that, um, and I know that they were like fans of each other, but the way that Godard directs some of Alphaville, mm. just in the way that this movie is shot and the way that um, city streets are shot and close-ups are shot. And, right. Um, I can certain ang- angles that are taken in interiors of certain scenes, it kind of has the same feeling to me. So. But it's a really strong crime story. Um, I think it's one of the better examples of like that hard-boiled um, crime fiction yeah. from the perspective of the criminal, which is, you know, majority of the time, and we talked about this when we talked about Friends of Eddie Coyle, um, that the majority of the time you're looking at these movies from the other perspective, where it's from the police perspective. And seeing a crime film from the perspective of the criminal is um is always pretty interesting, I think. Yeah, I and really, really great performances. And Melville's a pretty awesome, pretty awesome dude as a director. Yeah, the fact it's that it's like general. a yeah, the fact that it's like you know yeah, the, this heist like a it's like the, you know Kubrick's the killing, you know, like uh asphalt jungle, like you know the, the I, I think that's why like if you actually go back and look at the forties, the crim- criminals never really made out um and i and i and i think melville obviously is influenced by like our 40s movies um and it's why like you know crying never pays kind of in in his stuff as well because i think he's so influenced by that noir stuff but it really feels watching this the only criticism i really found that i like thought was reasonable from a from a viewer because i couldn't find anything from um critics was um, somebody said the first 30 minutes felt like trying to power on a car without success. Um, and, and I can see that complaint, maybe, like, you know, um, from, from some people. Um, this, this person went on to praise the rest of the movie, but they felt the first 30 minutes was a little... Um, Ooh, I get that. And I can see that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a slow burn, uh, this movie. Um, but a lot of noirs are kind of like like that, like old crime movies and stuff. And um, it's like a slow kind of like telling until it builds and builds. Um, so I, I, I get that criticism, but at the same time, like I, I see now that I've watched a handful of Melville movies that like your kind of insistence um, over the years, it's like I see what he's doing in terms of I think taking the stories and the feel of the American forties and modernizing it to the point where it's like, you know, now he's doing things in in color most of the time. Like, you know, it's like, he's really taking the cinematic qualities of the noir into new territory to me. Right. I agree. Um, And then that kind of gets passed back to us, I think in some ways. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, by the time we get to this time period of like the 70s and stuff like that, we can start seeing that getting passed back to us now um, to where it's like, I think something like The Long Goodbye and like Altman probably is like very kind of like influenced by some of what Melville's doing. 
Sure. I mean, Altman was very, very much influenced by um, foreign film in general, but also like the French New Wave and I think like Italian New Wave. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that he loved Melville without like putting words in his mouth or like sure. going 100%. Like, yeah. I would imagine he was really a big fan of him and Godard. And I know like definitely Fellini, like you can see um, in a lot of his movies, but. Right. And, and obviously, I mean, we talked about this before, I think, um, like, uh, you know, Tarantino is a big fan of like, you know, like the French, you know, like crime movies and stuff like that. And, you know, um, you know, it's like you can see I think you can see some elements at uh, occasionally of like the way cuts happen. Right. Like Tarantino stealing in Jackie Brown. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I'm sure that Tarantino is a huge fan. I, to me, Melville has this trilogy, and it's this movie, uh, Le Samurai and Bob Le Flambert, all of which are like really great movies. Um, have you ever seen Bob? Bob the Gambler? Yep. You, Bob uh, Le Flambert. Yeah, I just gave it back to you like two years ago on DVD because I think you let me like borrow it for like six years. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. That and uh, Homicide and something yes. else. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. We're all together. Mm-hmm. No, I had I have seen that, and I watched uh, the Samurai last year. Um, although I need to watch it again because I was drinking. It's a good movie. You'll enjoy it. It's over. Right. I, I watched the entire thing, but I started watching it like while I started drinking, and then it's like you came over, and then like I had like an hour left, and. By the time you left, I was drunk. <laughs> and then I finished it, and it's like, I don't really remember it that well. That was uh, the those were the days. Yeah, right? That was the night we watched that Andy Samberg um, Bash Brothers um, thing oh, right. on Netflix. Which is um, also brilliant. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, no, this is a good movie. This is a really good movie. It's a, it's a, it's yeah. a good um, it's a good entry in like that because uh, I was not to until i met you i wasn't didn't know a lot about like the french noir stuff and um yeah this is another good entry uh, in that so. it's almost it's, it's almost all pretty good like across the board i mean some of it's like more esoteric especially the stuff that like good art right um contributions to it like a band of, or um a band apart and uh mm-hmm. I don't know, like Pierre LeFou, and mm-hmm. he has a bunch of stuff where there's like a crime element to it. Breathless sure. right. has a strong like crime element. Right. Um, yeah, I like his stuff the least in terms of crime. Like, right. I mean, in terms of the crime elements of it, really. I understand that. But I mean, he's more concerned with the the human element behind all of it rather than... Sure. And I think that Melville like loves the human element, but I also think that at its core, he wants to tell a good like sorted crime story you know yes and i appreciate that like it reminds me very much of like um the way that like uh oh shit what's his name with the parker books what's his name chuck turned him on turned me on to him um i can't remember that dude's name you're talking about the writer that wrote the parker books yeah george something um man Uh, Don Don Wesley. 
Oh, right. Um, yeah, it reminds me very much of like his kind of like um, like <clears throat> like the 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 stories that he tends to tell reminds me very much of like something that like Westlake would write. Um, but yeah, that's somebody I need to get back into at some point. I never read all of his books. All right. But yeah, I'm always interested in like every time you put um crime movies on because unless we do a category like the, the, the those noir type movies at least anyway we yeah. don't really get to talk about like the noir type stuff like very much so yeah i don't have as much of affection for them as you do but when i like them i like them a lot so yeah right all right so number two on your list is bernardo bertolucci's the conformist it stars Jean-Louis Trantino, um, Steph, uh, Stefania Sandrelli, and Dominique Sanda. I got Dominique right this time now. Sanda, yeah. I, I got wrong. Um, it has a 98% from critics and a 90% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and why it's so high on the list? I'm just happy you got a old, old Jean-Louis Trintignant. <laughs> Trintignant, um, yeah. Correct. Trot, Trottino, Trottino, right? Trottino, Which is third appearance on um third. Get the hell out of here. Trottino is now. I think. I would think this is might be. I have to look it up. I think it's his fifth appearance, actually. Well, it's the Great Silence. This, um, the he was in two. Let's see, he was in um, what the was it white. No, he's in red. 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 Yeah, he's the um, the um, older guy in red. This dude's appeared. On, it's a, it's at least four. I think it's five. But I'll look it up while you're going ahead and telling everybody. You know what's funny is that we're doing a female centric episode in um February, and one of the movies on that list is going to be he's in it. So yeah, he's coming back around. <laughs> Um, and so the conformist is basically about this guy who feels like it again, another movie that takes place during um the height of fascism in uh Italy in the 30s and 40s. Um, uh, Clarici, uh, Clarici, I guess is how you say his name. Um, Marcello Clarici, who's a low-ranking soldier in, like, the Italian secret police, basically. Um, Through the use of flashbacks, uh, you find that he's kind of joined the fascists because he doesn't really believe in anything, and this is just his way to fit in and try and have a normal life, which is also why he's marrying this kind of vapid woman that he's not really in love with um kind of would you say that it's implied that it's because he was sexually molested as a kid that he doesn't really and he also like lacked really strong like parental figures that he's are you, are you in, asking me why he is like he is like why yeah, do you I'm, think I'm, they're suggesting that well was he molested or was he it was an attempt right 
well more than it was like actually like i think it's just because they're not going to show you like hardcore child molestation in 1970 so you're you're saying that the attempt is the symbol for the actual molestation like in some degree yeah and i think that the the priests like becoming Mm. sort of like Mm. aroused during the confession is yeah i i I think right yeah i think you're right yeah it's it's much more so this is based on a book by alberto moravia um it's much more pronounced in the book than it is in the movie um it makes me super uncomfortable like that whole scene with um the young uh marcello going away with nino the um chauffeur and getting locked in his room yes. like oh, it's so uncomfortable mm-hmm. um but anyway through his ties with the fascist government and you know his job as a secret policeman um he's basically tasked with assassinating his former professor um who's moved to paris and has become a really outspoken opponent of fascism um but at his heart he's a coward and a man incapable of action in a lot of ways um so he's not able to assassinate the guy plus he falls in love with the man's wife (laughs) um who sort of seems like she's in love with him but is also in love with his wife um a lot of like uncomfortable i don't know like politics of romance situations that happen um ultimately though he betrays uh his former professor and um his wife and gets get them murdered by the secret police uh only to basically denounce fascism um and completely turn into a different person at the end at the fall of uh, Mussolini um where you sort of have a lot more sympathy for his wife at that point um i actually really like his wife as a character like i never really see her as vapid i just see her as normal and loving and you know i mean she's oh, not yeah, like she is normal well, i mean because that's what he desperately yeah. wants but he yeah right she had mumps and scarlet fever and those are moral diseases to have as opposed to the syphilis <laughs> of the father contracting from prostitutes right that's that's one of my favorite scenes in the movie where they're right. all sitting pasta yeah he's like oh well at least those are those are moral illnesses moral maladies or whatever right, right. line is um <laughs> Fontenot is freaking fantastic in this movie um it's one of my favorite performances maybe ever like I really love this performance, and I I love him in this movie. Um, friggin' Vittorio Storaro and Bertolucci, the way they film this movie is, it almost like defies characterization. It's so good. Like it's such a beautiful film. Um, Bertolucci's use of doorways and hallways and just architecture in general to frame his story, and always kind of puts you in the perspective of like the way that these characters are trapped by their surroundings and their past and the preconceived notions that their lives need to take. You know, I mean, here's a guy who doesn't believe in anything except for wanting people to think that he believes in something. Like, the idea that 
his place in society and his place in life is basically nothing more than just what other people think of him kind of and he's sort of empty and you know even in the moments where he kind of finds some affection for people you know like when he's the only time he's really aroused by his wife is when he's listening to her describe how she was basically molested as a kid and that's the thing that like evokes like passion in him towards her which is really uncomfortable and really sad and then you know meeting the wife of his professor who is the only woman that doesn't really throw herself at him throughout the entire movie like initially you know who's kind of aloof to him and that's also arouses him because he hates himself so much and like his his childhood and his breeding and what he the stock that he comes from it's just it's it's a really really sad and depressing look at like a human beings need to fit in with society and just how empty you know that all that act can ultimately be um but yeah beautifully filmed movie like some amazing scenes the use of architecture in it like the way that um Bertolucci films these like empty buildings and you know just these like monuments to human excess that you know are still left over from because you know filming the movie in 69 he's filming it set in what like 44 45 somewhere around there yeah i guess because like probably over the course of i don't know like a year or two it takes place mm-hmm. i mean at least two years because the daughter is a toddler at the end of the movie and she's not even born that's like kind of the coda of the movie um but yeah just yeah. beautiful movie brilliantly filmed Storaro is such a phenomenal cinematographer um it's a shame like i kind of feel i don't want to say fell apart i don't love bertolucci's later stuff as much as i love really his early stuff and i would say everything up to last emperor because i think last emperor is one of my favorite maybe like one of my like i don't know it's 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 a really great movie the last one of the most really good yes absolutely i absolutely agree like I, then, understood, I understood that as an eight-year-old. Like that this is like one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my entire life. Like yeah, just and like to see like the genesis of that. Yeah. So Bertolucci filmed a movie a couple years before this. Um, that's like Italian Rashomon, basically. Mm. Um, although he claimed that he had not seen Rashomon at the time that he filmed it. Um, and it'll be on the list coming up in a couple months. Um. But the the mastery that this dude has of just like framing and setting a scene and building tension within a scene and giving you all the information you need to know about a character just from the way he films that person in context with everything around him is um, like one of the most brilliant uses of lighting in the movie is um, the scene where Marcello has gone to um fuck, I can't remember her name. The wife. Um I don't Anna? know. Anna. Um where, oh, he goes that's, to, okay, that's okay. where he goes to Anna's uh dance studio and she's basically offering herself to him, but they're both like alternatingly bathed in this like blue, like cold light. 
from the light outside of it's just the way that he films it is just amazing and it's like <clears throat> when she warms to him like he's cool to her and then as soon as she cools to him like he warms to her and then it, i don't know it's just it's that dude's an amazing director and this is like, yeah i i looked it up um like after i watched this because it's like the the damn cinematography in this is so fucking good it's so good like and 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 it's everything is framed so well that I looked up Wong Kar Wai because I wanted to know who his influences were, and he's actually more he he is influenced um to some degree by um the new wave the French new wave in general um and stuff like that like you know Godard and those kind of things. But it's like I was trying to look up to see if he like was into like any Italian stuff or anything, and it doesn't have any mention. But damn there the cinematography because some of my favorite cinematography ever like we talk about is in in the mood for love um in terms of like framing shots and stuff like that and the way that i think like bodies can be used for tension and stuff like that and it's like i was watching this and i thought the same thing like as i was watching it um and so i was really interested to see if like he was a fan of bertolucci um but yeah like it's you know how much love i have for in the mood for love and it's like Uh this is like that good like this movie. well it's more i mean that stuff is more vittorio storaro than bertolucci yeah and he did apocalypse now in 1900 and mm. um mm. fucking dick tracy and i don't know a bunch <laughs> of other stuff um but storaro is a master of just like is dick tracy one of those movies that you love and everybody else hates i love the way dick tracy looks oh, i don't okay. love dick tracy okay all right Easter loves Dick Tracy. Oh, okay. All right. Like, sorry, go, go on. I, just, I, I thought I had heard you talk about liking Dick Tracy. Maybe you just talked. I, I think Dick Tracy is one of the most aesthetically pleasing movies of the 1990s that holds no value anywhere else. Gotcha. Okay. But man, it looks so good. Like the colors in that movie and just the way that. It, it maybe up until like the Marvel films of the past like decade and a half, the best encapsulation of what a live action comic book should look like is that movie. Yeah. But I think a lot of that is Storaro and just the way that mm-hmm. he like captures like lighting and almost gives like a cell shaded look to the the actors on the screen. Yeah. Breathless Mahoney. Um <laughs> Balls Mahoney, more like. Uh, yeah, so The Conformist is an amazing movie. It's really good. Yeah. And reading I, the book, too, if you've never read it. Mm, pretty short book. I, um, I mean, this is my, like, favorite movie on the list. Um, I understand why you have the other one, number one. But this was my favorite, and, and it's because of, like, one very specific reason, I think, is that, like, and I think you know this about me. It's like any I'm going to love anything that I think is universal. Like in the idea that like it can be, you can view this at any time, and still take things away from it. Like and and compare and and you know because the story is like speaks through generations to me. Like this story is just as important now, maybe even more so than other years. Um, then it's just as important now than it was then um about like because it raises questions about human nature and what we're capable of as people like you know and why we do the things we do and like you know um you know and trying to like investigate those types of things 
of how you end up like doing really terrible things in the name of something that's not good. Um, right. and and because you want to, conf- you know, because you whatever, obviously you want to conform, you want to be, you know, um, and it's like I, you know, this idea of normality, um, and like how we like people that are not normal, we kind of tend to, you know that normal itself is a subjective thing and that it's like this idea that people are outside of the norm of the normal are like you know are 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 bad in some way um and i don't know i think i think it can explain a lot of a lot of what we see right now (laughs) isn't the thing with marcello that he's so ashamed of his mother and his father and the way they comport themselves and just, you know, the way that they're like, not, not really examples of like normal Italian life in the way that he views it. And that's why he joins the fascists because they represent this very strict and rigid interpretation of morality and you know, it's a very rigid worldview where he can kind of like adhere to that, even though it doesn't, it's counterintuitive to what he actually feels inside himself. And I think that's like the beauty of that last shot is the idea that, you know, he's denounced the fascists and denounced the man that like basically raped him as a child and that right. he thought he killed and the kind of forced him his entire life into being you know, this person that he was, like it was Lino and Lino's like abuse of him as a child that caused him to do the things that he did. And so in like kind of casting all his demons out on that guy, like he's able to become the person he would have been. Well, right, but then he goes and denounces his best friend though. (laughs) Well, I think he's just just getting it all out. He's just getting rid of all of it. Like he's getting rid of all this, this persona that's not him and never was him. And I think that's why, like, when he looks behind him, you know, at the naked homeless man that he just had sex with, presumably, or is going to have sex with, like, it's the first time that he actually looks like kind of like more human, you know, where you see like the full depth of humanity on this man's face as opposed to just kind of being like a cipher. And I don't know. I think that's. To your point, I think it's the question of like what what shapes you as a person. Like what what are the things that force you into the person that you are, or like the face you show to the world, or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good good analysis. Um, but it's yeah. it's it's a brilliant movie and brilliantly acted, phenomenal direction, beautiful cinematography. It's you know like one one of my favorite movies of the early seventies, and definitely like a stunning introduction if you've never seen it to um to Bertolucci and just what he's capable of so yeah yeah Bertolucci God, brought somebody some light and shadow especially yeah. <laughs> like half yeah. half open blinds or like just the way that he has people move through light and shadow simultaneously like again like just telling you everything you need to know about who these people are without bogging it down with a lot of like overt, you know, like explicit narrative or whatever. So anyway, it's good. Yeah. 
I so I've seen the only things I've seen is I've seen the Last Emperor when I was young, a couple times when I was young, like maybe like fairly young and a teenager. I've seen Last Tango in Paris when I was like a little older. Um, I've seen this now, and I've seen um, uh, is that it? That's it. I've seen the Dreamers. I think no, I never seen the Dreamers. I never watched. You never seen Stealing Beauty? No. Um. No, I've never seen that either. Um, so yeah, I'm not. Um, Dude, you never seen Spider Stratagem? No. Uh, you got um, you got a lot to watch there, bud. Um. So yeah, so like yeah, I, I'm really um. Yeah, I'm really interested in seeing like more from him now. Well, yeah. Like I said, we're gonna watch uh, La Kamari Seika. Um, Okay. In the next couple of months, it'll be on the list. All right. Um, so I'm interested to have you see that. But man, you need to, um, you definitely need to watch Spider Strategy because I think you would really, really enjoy Spider Strategy. Okay. I think it's free on Prime, if I'm not mistaken. Oh. And that's the, that's a, the same year as this. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> cool. All right. But yeah, this is uh, this is really good. And even what I was saying earlier about like speaking to our times, I wasn't even being poli- even though I know Bertolucci's being political here that he's a socialist. But I mean, um, or Marxist, I guess more um, accurately. But um, but I wasn't even being political when I said that. It's like I mean, I think you can take either end of the extreme in this country right now, and it speaks to both of those things. You know, I mean, in terms of the idea of conforming to a group um, and a political ideal, I think it. I think this is like a nonpartisan thing. This is just what happens to people when they try to become part of whatever they see as the norm is. Um, and I, I think it's a brilliant examination of that. Um, it just so happens that he's looking at it from, you know, that time period. But, <clears throat> but yeah. Um, all right. So... Number one on your list is Akira Kurosawa's Dodeska Den. Uh, it has so many actors that I'm not going to torture you or me by reading all of them. Um, it has a 73% from critics and a 78% from audiences. So, Frank, uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the movie? Uh, why it's number one on your list? And I guess add in, this is the lowest ranked movie by both critics and audiences, I believe. Um, yes, uh, on this list. Uh, so what do you make of that, like, um, uh, estimation of the movie uh, critically? A lot of those reviews have to be contemporaneous, I would imagine. Because it wasn't well received when it first came out. Um, it's the closest thing to an anthology film on this list, um, even though it's got a... It doesn't have, it, it's not a series of vignettes. It's just a series of almost like novellas, like looking at different people that live in this shanty town. Um, these impoverished Japanese people and like their lives and the way those lives intersect. Um, ultimately, like the horrors that they face, kind of. And to me, it's a companion piece to The Lower Depths, which is one of my favorite Kurosawa movies. Um, whereas the lower depths takes place in like the Meiji era, um, and is firmly planted in that like samurai um, aesthetic. Uh, Dodeskaden is 
planted firmly in the modern day, and I think actually probably takes place like sort of contemporaneous to its release. Um, it's a really rough and I think uncompromising look at the way that the Japanese kind of view the mentally challenged, the impoverished, um, people who are maybe like petty criminals or just have not had like good lots in life um, and the way that those people sort of view each other. Uh, the framing piece, the title of the film, The Dodeskaden, um, comes from the onomatopoeia used by uh, this character who's, you and I talked about him probably being like supposed to be autistic. Mm -hmm. um, I think that contemporaneously it was referred to as like mentally challenged or right. yeah. um, probably in like the rough vernacular they would have called him like retarded. Um, but this kid who lives with his mom and who has this fantasy that he's the conductor of this train that travels around these slums um, and is on like a schedule sort of. Um, the Dodeskaden, again, is the onomatopoeia for the sound that the train makes, like the chugga 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 chugga. Um, what was that again? Chugga 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 chugga. Hmm. Uh, so for him, it's Dodeskaden, Dodeskaden, and like that, you know, that repeating, like surging forward noise as he runs around, um, sticks to the schedule, sort of this early in the film is kind of you feel sort of sad for him and that shows people like mocking him and him kind of just being oblivious to it. But then towards the end of the film, I think that the idea behind it is he's at least like some semblance of regularity um, in the scope of like the fractured lives of these people. Um, there's a lot without going, cause there's a lot of like, again, intersecting stories, but they're all pretty terrible. Um, little boy whose father's kind of obsessed with the idea of moving to like a better house like on the hill um, which is again like an idea that's taken from uh lower depths you know little boy dies of food poisoning um there's a young girl who's sort of a slave to her alcoholic uncle that ends up getting raped and impregnated by the uncle um and who ends up stabbing like this one kid that actually shows her affection this delivery boy mm -hmm. Um, this older man whose wife is just like mean and hated and even though like she's terrible like he loves her and he's still like sticks up for her and I don't know it's just it's not an incredibly hopeful look at humanity on the surface but I think that there's small things that still show like a love of humanity but I think that Kurosawa in a lot of ways was sort of tired of just being this guy that was like building the myth of Japan. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like this guy who had made these movies that were about, you know, like Toshiro Mifune like vanquishing the bandits or you know, whatever. Like telling Macbeth or Lear from a Japanese perspective and um, the movie was not well received um, critically, you know, in Japan or by the Japanese public. And we talked about this um, off air. And this is something that, you know, I'm by no means like an expert in anything, but I've watched a lot of movies from this time period. And you have people like 
um, like Seijun Suzuki and um, fuck, I keep saying his name wrong. What's his name? The guy that did Vengeance is mine. Um, Imamura. Yeah, Imamura making these movies that are like kind of critical of not only the way that like the Japanese have sort of embraced almost like colonialism because they were occupied by you know allied forces and specifically americans for um, a long time after world war ii but also sort of their inability to turn away from this idea of the imperialism of um world war ii era japan that they're somehow like still honor bound um you know you had people like um nishima who still believed in the idea of like honor seppuku and you know that the Japanese would rise again. And I think there's these artists that are specifically saying like, look, like we have a lot of problems and we're not going to get better by ignoring those problems and pretending to be something we're not. Um, and we need to like face who we are and kind of move on from it. And I think that that, that backlash, Kurosawa definitely didn't expect it. Um, you know, he became suicidal after this movie was, sort of rejected by the populace at large. Um, and it took him a while to like make anything else, but yeah. you look I at mean, this as his first color film and it's just, it's, it's amazing that like this man is able to just capture the palette he captures in this rundown, like trash through shantytown and still capture that nobility in these people. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people that are still that, I always think of it as the Japanese stiff upper lip like the, you know, I'm not going to disappoint you. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give up attitude. Um, and he captures that, but then is still like willing to show how dangerous that attitude can be and just how like bad some people have it. Um, and how like ignoring those problems, you know, and that's illustrated in the story of the father and the son, um, how ignoring those problems just leads to, you know, it doesn't do you any good to be like, overtly hopeful <clears throat> without you know trying to better your situation like just looking up at that hill and imagining the fancy house isn't going to like in the end solve anything or mm -hmm. help anyone so right that, that kind of did not right and I, I took that as like the i took all the other stories as like um just slices of life to some degree like, of, like, here's the kind of things that, like, you know, in a post-war society, that's the story that I took as, like, being the most emblematic of, like, a point is is just the complete denial of reality. So, yes, but let me, let me frame it like this, because I'm thinking about it a lot more now. Mm -hmm. So, we watched Audition, and we were talking about how in Audition, um, Mike is kind of showing the hypocrisy of the Japanese like traditional romantic comedy and the idea of like right. the older man finding love in the younger girl and you know this idea of like pure romantic love kind of glossing over the fact that there's like mental illness and people have their own shit happening inside their heads. I think that Kurosawa is doing the same thing here with a variety of different like tropes of Japanese filmmaking like leading up to this point. Like, for instance, the idea of the poor shop girl and the poor, like, working class boy who ultimately find love with one another because 
he's so committed to her purity and like her whatever that he's willing to do anything and they have that happen but then the unimaginable happens to her and then it doesn't even end up like they don't even really you know there's no romantic love there because she has nowhere else to vent her frustration so she ends up taking it out on him you know what i mean like it's Mm -hmm. the complete opposite like it's Right. I don't know if it's 100% realistic, but it's definitely probably right. a more realistic yeah. portrayal than, you know, the eternal hope of, like, Japanese cinema up to that point. Right. And the Kurosawa was sort of guilty of himself in a lot of ways, like in movies like Redbeard. And, um, not that that's, like, 100%. I mean, he, he always has a healthy dose of, like, human cynicism in his films, but, like, this movie is just really kind of a... Ref- a, a refutation, I think, of the inability of the Japanese people to recognize what had happened and where they had come, kind of. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this idea that we're always going to prevail and we're going to rise again and it's going to be the empire of the rising sun or whatever. And it's just like, no, like there's real problems and we need to face those problems or we're never going to get better. Um, and that's just my interpretation of it. Yeah. I don't know for sure, but. I don't know. Like, I think it's a brilliant movie. Again, I, I love the fact that, you know, in it's in the title itself. It's like, the thing is, is that maybe you do have to kind of just be able to have, like, that routine, but, like, recognize that, you know, it's about the trains running on time, even if it's not, you know, a real train. Does that make sense? Kind right. Of sure. I, get, I, I see what you're saying. And it's not about like the, I don't know, like the fairy tale. Not the Japanese have like really fairy tales, but the 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 fake view of like the way the world is. It's more about the idea of like these people that are willing to suck it up and do a job and just you know like help the country move on. And that's what um, Ro- Roko or whatever I can't remember the kid's name that thinks he's a train, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's what that kid's doing, so. Yeah. Roku-chan. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I love the movie. I don't know. Yeah. Hard for me to dislike anything Kurosawa does. Um, you know what else is a nice counterpoint to this is, uh, um, Stray Dog is another one that's like, this and the bad sleep well. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that he did that's a very dark examination of post-war Japan and I don't think that people like really necessarily liked it. I think they just wanted him to make his samurai movies. And... Well, look, I'm not an expert on a Japanese culture. Like my biggest exposure to Japanese culture probably comes from examining that country through the lens of what I know about World War II and professional wrestling. So, um, but they are not a culture necessarily that likes to talk about things. Um, they, like you said, you call it like their stiff upper lip. It's like it's repression. Um, and they are very repressed. They're, they're, they're much better, I think, than they used to be. But they're, they've historically been a very repressed country. They don't let their emotions out. They think emotion, you know, showing emotions, not good. They don't like to talk about things. And I think if he's trying to talk about things when they're not ready, yeah, it's going to go poorly. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's and be- just, it's, it's like, it's such an like, abject criticism of, you know, I don't know, like that ideology that, whatever just 
perseverance and ignoring your problems will cause everything to be better. Like it'll eventually sure. just write itself if you just right. keep your chin up and your chest out and keep marching forward. I mean, that's not, I mean, that's even <laughs> it's, said, it's, I think, a right. couple it's, times. It's not reality. You mean saying the virus is going to go away doesn't mean it's going to go away? Right, exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, I read about this after you told me about it because I, I knew he attempted suicide at one point. I didn't know it was after this movie. Um, and and after you told me about it, I started reading up about it. And it's a pretty horrific suicide attempt. I mean, it's it's I mean, there it's like not as just his wrist, but his throat as well. I mean, like it's bad. Yeah. Um, and had you seen? Do you know the movie that the Russian movie that he did that he got financed for? In between yeah, this um, and fuck, I always forget that movie's name. The the Seiyu, no, that's not it. Yeah, um, I know it. Yeah, it was like Dirt, Dursu or something. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I don't, I've never seen that, so I don't know like how that movie is, but um. But seriously, like from because we've talked about both Kagamusha and Ron now, like you know, and from this movie now to those two movies. Which Lucas ends up like, you know, and I uh, funding, you know, and I think Coppola um, helps him in some way for production, like, you know, costs like um, for Kagemusha. But that's the only movie he does between Dodeska Den in 1970s release and Kagemusha in what was that? That was 80, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he does that one movie that like takes him like a year and a half in Russia after, and that's after the suicide attempt. Like, that's crazy for this like respected director, and then to produce those two movies, right? Um, so yeah, I, it's it's a pretty amazing story. Like that, this is the thing that causes him to, you know, almost have that downfall. Um, because it's a good movie, and yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it's I'm I'm not I I liked the Conformist more because, um, it's a story like I you know how I feel about short stories, but I mean, it's a, it's a good movie, and the filmmaking behind this first first color film is astounding. Um, like you know, pretty much everything you've already said, like about like the you know the filmmaking of this. Um, I do want to just quickly say, because I texted you when I watched this, um, about Wes Anderson right. and what, and I was saying, I said something cheeky about Wes Anderson, like that he saw this movie and just wanted to keep trying to remake it over and over. Right. Um, and I was saying that because of like, you know, there's the quirky characters with this hint of sadness to them. There's like philosophical musings, there's the stationary camera and like really well-framed shots, you know, open space, either open space shots or tight framing with vibrant colors. Like all these kind of things are just like, so um, I was, re I read up to see if like, if I want to confirm that um, he knows this movie really well. And he says it's the primary inspiration for Iowa dogs. <clears throat> really? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, good job, I guess. Yeah. So I was just making like a, you know, a shitty comment about Wes Anderson, even though I love Wes. I, I mean, I like a lot of his movies, like, but it's all like, dogs. Really? Yep. I really enjoy that movie. I, I don't know. Maybe I guess I can see that a little bit. 
Yeah, he says it was one of the primary motivations. Like, you know, like was 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 this movie? Oh, um, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, but yeah, um, and I think you can see a lot of like what's coming, like with his colors, particularly, but also like you know some of his um camera work, like and how it was changing a little bit. I think you can see a lot of that here in uh what's coming, like for eventually in Kagamusha and, and particularly Ron, which I think is like his masterpiece probably to me um in a lot of ways but oh yeah i would um i would love to have seen another like half dozen movies in color by kurosawa yeah yeah all right so um just a quick follow-up uh Trano, the other movie that he was in on the list it's only been four um but the other movie was uh city of lost children oh right I forgot he was in that movie. So I think he's up there with Hackman right now. Like he, I think Hackman's been in four. I think he's been in four now. So somehow Jean-Louis Tronno is, I think, the leader, um, like tied for the lead, like in terms of number of actors who, at least in lead, uh, like in kind of like kind of leading roles of like, bit on. This Unless thing. you count uh, Nick Cage. I don't. <laughs> um, I'm excited for next week's list. It's a good list. It is a good list. I, I'm I'm all I'm through all of them but one. Um, I'm gonna watch that this week. Um, I haven't started the '90 list. Um, I know most of the movies. The only I think there's only one maybe in the 2000 list I haven't seen. But um, you have not started the '90s list. I have not. No. Huh. That's it. Um, I I believe there's so many movies. Movie. I only know one movie out of that. I've only seen one before, so it's like I I don't know what I'm getting into. So I'm like a little like hesitant, and I'm trying to like get some real like some real world stuff done first before I like really jump into it. But I gotta jump into it this week. Um, <laughs> yeah, you only got seven days. No, I got no two. I got two weeks. The ninety oh, list. Take it next weekend off. No, next week is 80. I said 90 oh, is right, what right, I had right. to start I forgot. Right, you're right. <sighs> I'm the one that's drinking whiskey. Eh. Um, the loon. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, I'm, I'm really excited about those lists. Um, I watched one out of the 2000 lists already just because it was free somewhere. I didn't want to lose it, but um, in case it goes away because everything goes away now all the time. Um, just month to month, just it all goes away. Except for what? I think I watched something on the 2000 list too. Yeah, one of those movies I I you're making me watch it. One of it's one of the movies I promise I'd never ever watch again, and you're making me watch it. Yeah, you'll be fine. Um, feel good. So that's gonna be the second one on the podcast now that I said I would never watch again. You're making me watch because Henry, yeah. Henry Henry was the other one. Well, if I can say I've done anything good in life, it's forcing you to watch movies that make you supremely uncomfortable multiple times. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so quick cage this week. Um, I'm assuming we'll have a positive review either way, right? Like, yes, 
Um, so, um, yeah. Did I tell you? Did, did I did I tell you what I? I can't remember if I told you that last night or not. It crossed my mind last night, but I don't know if I said it. Um, with Christmas coming up, I think you need to do Trapped in Paradise. You told me. Uh, I don't know if it was last night, but you definitely said it. Oh, okay. Um, fine. I guess I don't know. Because if you do it, I'll, I'll watch Trapped in Paradise. Um, I gotta pay to watch that movie, though. I think. Yeah, really? Yeah. I don't think it's free anymore. Because mm. I yeah. wanted to watch it. Does um, he have any other Christmas movies? Family Man. Mm. All right, get that That's free somewhere. Free for me, I think. <laughs> uh, Trapped in Paradise is apparently on Hulu for free. Hmm. And it says it's on Prime for free, too, but that must have just happened. Yeah, it's probably the coming Christmas season. They're just adding shit like that is holiday related. Well, I've noticed that if it's on Hulu, it tends to show up on Prime, too. Although not well, by but, but, yeah. yeah, it's weird. Are you sure it's not like Prime? Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Um, uh, oh, you know why? So the like Nicolas Cage Trap Paradise is on Cinemax. So it's free for Frank. Um, there is another movie called Trapped in Paradise that has it's a survival thriller. Uh that's got people that I don't know any of them. Mm. Oh, it must be some kind of they must be Finnish or Dutch or some shit. Yeah. Um, but that also is free. That's actually free on Prime. But the Nicolas Cage one is free on Cinemax. So. Right. Yeah, anytime you see it free on Hulu and Prime, it means that it's like Showtime, Cinemax, something like that. Like, um, usually just those two. Um, our stars. Stars can also be. Um, I'm going to watch this movie tomorrow night, actually. Yeah. That was a movie that um, I really regretted going to see um, when I was uh, like 14 years old. Captain Paradise? Yes. I think it was uh, me and I think Eric Watt. Maybe you want to go see it. I thought, man, it can't, it's gonna, it has to be funny considering it's got Lovitz and Carrie in it. Harvey. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Family Man is, a, um, it's a wonderful life, but like, really uncomfortable it's also free on Cinemax yeah that movie made me tear up a little bit I'm not gonna lie mm. I saw it in the theater mm. for no good reason that's embarrassing family man really it was a stay after work movie hmm it was one of those, like, what else do you have to do? Gotcha. Yeah. Well, we watched everything. Like, I mean, I was part of that life for a year with you. So, 2004. Back when you can go places. Indeed. All right. So, next week, we have 1980 coming out. And then, I don't know. Do you just want to, like, go straight through? Frank, like week to week, and then we'll just do our break. Um, well, we'll have a special episode at the end of the year, but um, just do our break on Christmas week. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. 
So we'll just be coming straight to you, like, you know, for the next three weeks with 80, 90, and 2000. And um, then we'll have a special episode at the end of the year, like a bonus episode. And then um, at that point, we'll be moving on to the new year's worth of lists. So thank you, everybody, for continuing to listen to us, continuing to download. Um, and please feel free to reach out to us, like we said, in the coming year, if you have any special ideas for us. So other than that, everybody, please be safe. Have a good night. And thanks. All right, have a good night.